That's a question for each and every one of us. Who's that individual that you know if Christ were to come back today or they were to die and stand before God Almighty, they'd be separated from him for all of eternity because of their sins? Who's that individual that you know in your life, your family member, neighbor, co-worker, individual that uh, is somebody that you encounter out in a restaurant that you frequent often? Who, who is that individual? And then what are you going to do about it? We've been commissioned by the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth for us to take the good news of Jesus Christ and to share it with those that are around us. And I pray that uh, we all would respond to uh, the, the church's call and answer to God's call upon all of us to take the good news of Jesus Christ to at least one person in between now and Easter. That's, I'll be honest, that's kind of a low bar in, in all honesty. But the angels in heaven rejoice over it. One. So I pray that you would seek out God's face and who that individual is in your life that you can share the good news of Jesus Christ with. We talk about revival. I've not been in church a, 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 a real long time. I've, I've been a follower of Jesus Christ a, a little over 10 years. But I've heard mentioned of, of revivals, of, of desiring to see revival wanting to see revival. In fact, there's even a church that I believe had a, a statement at one point in time. I, I don't know if they still have this tagline that we don't need to pray for a revival. We're living in one. Where? They must not understand true church history or what a, a true revival is if we would say that we're living in a revival. Baby still murdered in the womb, child pornography, rampant, pornography, rampant, divorce, rampant. Revival isn't just filling up seats in a church, it's filling up the hearts of each and every life, uh, each and every uh, believer's life to the point that uh, our communities are changed. That we become so, so sick of our own sin and our own depravity that we cry out to God and say, God, remove this. I, I don't want any of this anymore. There's no more comfort. There's no more glossing over sin. We understand the direct cost of our sin was the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we say, God, please bring your refining fire upon my life. Revival. I pray that we would experience true revival. There have been true revivals that have transpired in the history uh, of God's creation. We read about that in God's word. We also see that in the, in the history of the church. The great awakening that took place in 1734 to 1743. God used a man named Jonathan Edwards to ignite and, and light through his preaching. A revival that, that swept across this nation. The second great awakening from 1800 to 1840. God used a man named Charles Finney. The great prayer meeting revival of 1857 to 1858, where a, a layperson, Jeremiah Lanfear, was, was so burdened for the businessmen in New York City that he called a prayer meeting during the lunch hour for individuals to come. It started off with six individuals. It grew to 20, grew to 40. Pretty soon, every church in the area had to open their doors because individuals were more concerned with doing business with God than they were working through their lunch or having a sandwich. Revival. The urban revival of 1875 to 1885. D.L. Moody, a former shoe salesman used by God to be 
used to ignite a great revival, the revivals of 1905 and 1906, which were in correspondence to the Welsh revival of 1904. G. Campbell Morgan, a pastor in London, had to go see what was happening in 1904 for himself in Wales. And when he got back, he addressed his congregation. And he said this, if you and I could stand above Wales looking at it, you would see fire breaking out here and there and yonder and somewhere else without any collusion or prearrangement. It is a divine visitation in which God, let me say this reverently, in which God is saying to us, see what I can do without the things you are depending on. See what I can do in answer to a praying people. See what I can do through the simplest who are ready to fall in line and depend wholly and absolutely upon me. That's revival. We sing about it. But the question is, do we really want it? I think we're enamored with and in love with the idea and the, the theory of revival and what that would look like. But are we truly desiring from the very depths of our heart revival? See, revival doesn't come without a cost. It's the men and women of God dying to themselves. It's letting go of the things that would bring us comfort and clinging to the things that will bring God glory. Whatever those things may be. Do we truly want, revival comes at sacrifice. Revival comes at you denying yourself and picking up your cross and following after him. True revival is being completely sold out to God Almighty. Now, what is revival? We, we talk about it. Is, is revival just a bunch of people coming to church? Is it a bunch of people getting saved and a bunch of people being baptized? I think that's fruit of revival. But ultimately, what we will see over the subsequent weeks that we will share together in this series, studying God's word, is that revival really has more components than just people coming to faith in Jesus Christ or people being baptized. A true revival goes far beyond that. True revival involves prayer and repentance and obedience it involves unity within the church. It involves evangelism. And as a subsequent result of that, could be individuals coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being baptized. But our responsibility isn't to save anybody. Our responsibility is to cast the seed that has been entrusted to the church and allow God to cause the growth. We cast and we water. God causes the growth. J.I. Packer uh, Great theologian says this of modern day, revival is the visitation of God which brings to life Christians who have been sleeping and restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness. Then springs a vivid sense of sin and profound exercise of heart in repentance, praise, and love with an evangelistic outflow. I think that's a great definition of what the Bible teaches of what revival is. Vance Havner says this, revival is falling in love with Jesus all over again. Do you remember when you first placed your faith in, in Christ Jesus? Do you remember that in that moment, I didn't know everything in that moment, but I knew I needed Jesus. I knew that Jesus was the answer in that moment. And he so encounter, I had such an encounter with Jesus that, that he took over my heart and my life in such a way that revival is getting back to that moment in that, that, that instance and living it out each and every moment of each and every day. Dr. Martin Lord-Jones says this, revival means days of heaven upon earth. And I think that's probably the best definition of revival. It's experiencing what transpires in heaven here on earth. Jesus, when asked by the disciples to be taught how to pray, I, I, I always find it fascinating that the one question for them was, 
not to teach them how to preach, but to teach them how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, he said, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Revival is seeing an answer to that prayer. In heaven, nobody's disobedient to God. Revival is when God's people are so obedient that we experience the glory of heaven here on earth. Leonard Ravenhill says this, as long as we are content to live without revival, we will. As long as we're comfortable, as long as it's just, as long as they're dealing with it out there, we won't see revival. We, we live in a day and an age, not, not different than many of the things that transpired in the Bible. This is not new, but it is getting closer and closer where we see that the world is growing darker and darker and has more hatred towards God, the people of God and the word of God. We live in a day and an age where, where a man sits in prison right now in Edmonton, Canada, because he refused to close his church doors or to, order, or to, to obey some government official who said, you can only have 15% capacity. He said, you know what? I'm not going to turn anybody away from hearing the gospel. Let the room fill up. They said, well, we'll take you to prison. He said, he turned himself in and said, come on with it. When God's people say, I've got a higher authority over me, I'm not answering to you. They said, well, well, we'll release you. We'll let you out, but you got to stop preaching. Not going to do it. They chained the doors of his church. And as long as it's out there, well, that's Canada. As long as it's out there, we're, we're, we're okay. Me and my wife used to go to the abortion mill. And when we go to the abortion mill, we... We plead with women. We try to tell them, look, there are, there are alternatives. We, we, we speak to them in love to, to, to try to get them to understand there are, there are individuals that can, that can help you. The, the, the lie is that this is the only choice for you, but that's, that's not the reality. That's not the truth. What they want to tell you is, is you're too weak to be this young and have a baby. You're too weak to have this baby and still have an education. You're too weak. We're trying to tell you with the strength of God Almighty, there's nothing impossible for you. There's a good and a loving God, and we, we want to make sure. When we started this a few years ago, there was, there was one abortion mill in our city. Now we have two. The Bible Belt of America. Got one of the largest churches in all of America called Oklahoma. It's home. Yet, does the world around us look much different than the world that we see outside of that? See, revival isn't just filling up church seats. Revival is making a kingdom impact on the culture all around us. My prayer is that we would experience revival. Revival is, is fire from God falling upon us, just like in the days of Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 18, chapter 19, you can, you can read about Elijah when he confronted the prophets of Baal. And they, they had this... This confrontation where he said, look, you prepare an altar and you put, you put an offering on the altar and you call out to your God. And if he brings fire down to light that altar, then he's God. But I'm going to do the same. And if the God I pray to brings down fire from heaven, then, then he's God. 
Maybe some of you are familiar with that story. If you're not, I would encourage you to go back and read 1 Kings 18 and 19 about that story. But there's something that I always found that was always a little bit disheartening to me, but I, I pray is encouraging uh, to us as well when we understand the reality. In 1 Kings 18:30, before he was able to put the offering on the altar, it says, Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. God's people had neglected the altar of God to the point that it was in disrepair. Before fire from heaven could ever fall down, the, the altar had to be repaired first. If we want to see the fire of heaven fall, if we want to see revival come, then we better start by repairing the altars of our hearts that are in disrepair. That the altars of our churches that remain empty will be filled up with the people of God crying out against the wickedness in their own life and the wickedness in the life of all those that are around us. Before the fire of heaven could ever fall, he had to repair the altar that had been thrown down and had fallen into disarray. Now, here's the, the, the truth is, there's no magic formula for revival. As much as I want to, I wish I could preach revival into existence. I think each and every time, I, that, that, that's my heart's desire. That, that's my prayer. Every Saturday evening, me and my family, we come up here and we pray over each and every one of these seats. And we pray. We pray for everybody that will be here. Every Saturday, that's, that's part of our family. We come up here and we pray. We beg God to move. We've got a team of individuals in a room right now that is praying for uh, this service right now. They're, they're in a room. We've got a prayer team. We'd love for you to serve on that prayer team. If you understand the power of prayer... We got a room of individuals right now praying for each individual that is in this, this, this service. Praying for the word that is being proclaimed because we believe in the power of prayer. We, we cannot produce revival in and of ourselves, but what we can do is repair the altars of our hearts and beg God to bring the fire down. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Kings we're going to be in chapter 19, but we'll start in chapter 18, and we'll build a little bit of a backdrop of our text today before we get into it. 2 Kings chapter 19, we'll start in 18, in a message that I've entitled, The Power-Filled Prayer. One of the, the, the fruits, or one of the signs of true revival is prayer. In fact, in the Welsh revival of 1904, when you read about that, uh, there would be times where individuals would come into packed churches where the, the churches were so full they were spilling out into the, into the streets and individuals would ask who's preaching. And they would say, nobody's preaching, it's a prayer meeting. Nobody's preaching, we're just praying. Prayer is, is one of the signs of true revival where, where, where people say, I've got to get right with God. I, I understand the, the power of God. I understand the person of God. I want to proclaim God and the goodness of God. And so I'm at his feet crying out to him. In fact, Henry Blackaby says this, all revival begins and continues in the prayer meeting. Some have also called prayer the great fruit of revival. In times of revival, thousands may be found on their knees for hours, lifting up their heartfelt cries with thanksgiving to heaven. They, they spend hours in the prayer meeting. They're so sick of sin in their own life. That before they go tell anybody about the speck that is in theirs, they deal with the log that is in their own, that they would sit in a prayer meeting for hours 
if the preacher goes over five minutes, whew, will he hurry up? We sing we want revival to come, but do we truly want revival? Or are we content with our lives the way they are until the enemy is at our gates? Charles Finney, who was used by God in the Second Great Awakening, says a revival may be expected when Christians have a spirit of prayer for a revival. That is when they pray as if their hearts were set upon it. When Christians have the spirit of prayer for a revival, when they go about groaning out their heart's desire, when they have real travail of soul, then we experience revival. The man that we're going to be introduced in our text today is a man named Hezekiah. His name means the Lord's strength. And he would depend upon the Lord's strength time and time again. He was a king that served God Almighty well. By this time in the history of God's people, they had divided into two kingdoms. You had the kingdom of Israel, and then you had the kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah was a king in Judah, living in Jerusalem, and he was a good king. In fact, in chapter 18, we read this about Hezekiah, who, who reigned for 29 years. In verse 4, it says, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Assyria. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. We'll get into this next week a little bit more about casting out idols, but I'll just say from the get-go, all of the idols of our hearts aren't always outside of the four walls of the church. Just like they had to destroy the bronze serpent, a lot of the idols in our hearts are religious in nature. They're, they're things that we make bronze serpents out of within the church. And just as much as we need to deal with the idols outside of the four walls, we also need to deal with the idols in our heart that exist within the four walls. Usually we call them preferences. God calls them idols. We call them preferences. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. I want to be known as a man that holds fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Now, the Assyrians were the power in that, that, that day and age. They were the, the empire that was the most powerful. They were besieging Babylon during this time. They would turn their attention to other states to make them vassal states underneath their, their control. And what the king of Judah, Hezekiah, said is that we are no longer going to serve the Assyrians. We're not going to send them any tribute. We're not going to send them anything. We're not going to bow our knee to its Assyria anymore. We are only bowing our knees to God Almighty. Now, let me tell you something. When you make a stand like that for God, you better expect some opposition. You better expect the enemy is going to come to your gate. And that's exactly what happens. Now, it takes a little bit of time, but the Assyrians say they're not sending us tribute anymore. We're going to go. We're going to conquer their, their, their territory. We're going to conquer their kingdom. We're going to remove their king, and we're going to put a puppet king in their place. Anytime we make a stand for God, you better expect the opposition of the enemy to come knocking on your door. And that's exactly what happened. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Took all of the fortified cities except for Jerusalem. And so now they set up a base camp on the Philistine and Judean border, and they are now coming to Jerusalem. And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he sends word to Hezekiah, and he says that I will spare you 
if you give me, verse 14, 300 talents of silver and 13 talents of gold. That's 11 tons of silver and a ton of gold. If you give me 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold, I'll think about sparing you. You know what Hezekiah does? He relies upon his own strength and his own wisdom and he gives in. And he pays the tribute of 11 tons of silver and a ton of gold. But you know where he gets it? He gets it from the house of God. The things that have been given by God's people to be set aside for the work of God Almighty, he went and pillaged and gave to this king. Instead of trusting God Almighty, he trusted the silver and the gold. And it's easy for us to look at Hezekiah and say, what a dumb move, but don't we do the same? When we face problems, when we face situations, don't we go through our pro and con list and we try to work it all out and we try to make it all fit by our own wisdom and by our own strength instead of relying upon God Almighty? Don't we start to divert resources that are meant for the advancement of the kingdom of God and we start to build them into provisions for ourselves? I know I've unfortunately been guilty of that far too often than I'd like to admit. So... He sends this, but it doesn't appease him. You see, when you give in to the enemy, he always wants more. You can never appease our enemy. He's never satisfied. He always wants more and more and more. He wants to take you further and further away from God. You give an inch, he's going to call for another inch. You give two inches, he's going to call for two more. You give four, he's going to give, call for four more. He is never satisfied. And that's exactly what happened. He paid the ransom but the king of Assyria went ahead and sent an army to Judah anyways. Verse 16 of chapter 18 says, At that time Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah king of Judah had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent an army along with these three officials to address King Hezekiah. Now the individuals that he, he sends, we read about in, in verse 16, is the commander of the army, the supreme commander of the army, the first officer and the field commander. And the field commander is going to bring news from the king of Assyria to these three individuals that Hezekiah sends out to meet these other individuals. And what he says is something that is so telling for us to wrestle with in our time together as we get ready to look at our text. This individual that is representing the king of Assyria Ask the three men that are representing King Hezekiah and God's people. He asked them two questions. In 2 Kings 18.20, he asked them this question. And the Rabshakeh, this is the field officer, said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? In other words, what are you placing your trust in? That's what he's asking them. You see this army at your gate. You know that, that you can't defeat this army. In fact, he'll tell them, look, we'll make a wager. We'll give you 2,000 we'll horses. If you can put enough cavalry men on them, you can have the horses. They didn't even have enough individuals to put 2,000 men on those horses. He said, who are you trusting in, Egypt? Are you trusting in your God? The question for each and every one of us is, what are you placing your trust in? Your own wisdom, your own strength? Are you placing your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed on the cross? He asked him another question, not just what are you resting your trust in, but verse 21, 
He goes on to say in, in 2 Kings 18, 21, do you think that mere words are strategy and powerful war? In whom do you now trust? Who is your trust in? What is your trust in and who is your trust in? And when we pray power-filled prayers, we answer those two questions by saying, my trust is in the finished work of God Almighty and the promises that are given to me and my faith in him and my trust is in God Almighty. That's it. That's what I trust in and that's whom I trust in. But he would ask, do you think that mere words are a strategy and powerful war? Isn't that what the enemy tries to do when he, we talk about prayer? You think that's your strategy for war is just merely pray some prayers, just say some words? Listen, prayer is the greatest weapon that has been entrusted to the church and the followers of Jesus Christ that there is. It's not mere words, and we'll see that as we get into our text. Chapter 19, verses 14 through 19, God's word says this. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers. So God answered Hezekiah when he went to Isaiah in light of the questions that, that, that were asked. And he receives this letter that had been written in response to their refusal to serve the king of Assyria. And in fact, he says this, Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. He took that letter and he spread it before the Lord. He went up. He didn't, he didn't go to his army officials. He didn't go to his, his political officials. He went to God. When we have serious issues going on in our life, when the enemy is at our gate, we need to go up to God. Far too often we're concerned with the outlook when we need to be concerned with the uplook. Where are we looking? Who are we looking? Who are we putting our trust in? What is that? Who is that? He says he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. And, and ultimately, that's what our prayers are. It's us spreading our cares and our concerns, our worries, our frustrations. It's us uh, spreading all of those things that are going on in our life before the Lord. Now, the enemy wants to always try to answer those with various things. In fact, when... We go back a few verses in chapter 18, verse 31. We see that this individual that is talking to uh, the Israelites, talking to those individuals that are on the wall, he, he says this, Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine and each of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own sister. And that doesn't sound like bad terms. Because if you go back and you read this text, You'll see just a few verses before that. He said, if you don't come out, you're going to be eating and drinking your own excrement. Now he's saying, if you go ahead and come out, listen, this is what it's going to be. We'll make peace with you. Come out. You'll eat of your own vine. You'll eat of your own fig tree. You'll eat and drink, uh, each one of you, uh, water from his own sister. That doesn't sound like bad terms for surrender compared to the alternative, right? And that's what the enemy always tries to do, baits us to bite in, to not trusting God, but yet there's a hook that's always embedded in that bait. Because if you read the very next verse, the truth comes out. Until I come and take you away. Until I come and carry you off as captives into a foreign land to make you my slave. 
See, the enemy will always say, I'll give you all of this. If you just come and make peace with me, I'll give you all of this until I come and take you away. There's always a hook in the bait that the enemy casts before us. I, I heard that one time that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he didn't exist. I don't think that's the greatest trick the devil ever pulled. I think the greatest trick that the devil ever, the devil ever pulled was convincing individuals true freedom was found through enslavement to him. That you can actually have freedom by bowing your knee to me. Isn't that what he told Jesus in the wilderness? If you just bow your knee and worship me, you'll have every kingdom of this world. You'll have everything that this world has to offer. You, you'll, you'll have all the power. He failed to realize he was already king of kings and lord of lords. He didn't need all that. He had a kingdom that was going to be ushered in where every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is lord. Isn't that what he tries to do to us? Enjoy this until I come and take you away. And make no mistake about it, that day will come. Regardless of what it looks like in the moment right now, that day will come. So he goes and he spreads this out before the Lord. Verse 15 says, And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations of their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. Verse 19. Now, so now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And God answers that prayer in a mighty way. And I believe that God answers that prayer because it's a power-filled prayer. A power-filled prayer are prayers in which we recognize, first and foremost, the person of God. When we recognize the person of God, then we, we see these power-filled prayers being answered. What does it mean to recognize the person of God? Look at what Hezekiah starts his prayer with. He says, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. He understands who God is. Listen, you got to understand who you're talking to. If your pipes burst or if anything goes wrong in your house, I'm not the guy to call. I'm not him. You can tell me, go watch a YouTube video and they're going to teach you how to do it. I'm still not him. I'm not the guy. Don't call me for it. you got to know who you're talking to. I'm not that guy. Don't call the TV repairman if you got a plumbing issue. you got to know who it is you're talking to, first and foremost. Far too often, we just rush in with our prayers, and we got a to-do list, and we just kind of attach it to the refrigerator of God's kingdom, and then we go on about our business, expecting him to be the good butler to go through that list and just do what we want, and we fail to understand who it is we're talking to. It's the one who spoke everything into existence. That knows every hair that is on your head or used to be on your head. He remember those too. He said he's counting every, you ever counted your own hair? Not me, he loves you that much. That intimate of a relationship. 
Far too often, we, you want to know what the, how, if God loves you? Far too often the world tells us to look at your circumstances and your situations. If your circumstances and your situations are good, God loves you. If your circumstances and your situations are bad, God don't love you. That's, that's what the world will say. You want to know if God loves you? Don't look at your circumstances. Look at the cross of Calvary. That's how much God loves you. You ever doubt that? You ever wonder how much God loves you? You just go back to the cross. Because that's where his love poured out in the greatest capacity and the greatest way that you could ever dream or imagine. And guess what? No situation, no circumstance can put him back on the cross or could put him back on the grave. He's still on the throne as king of kings and lord of lords. And we ain't voting on that every four years. He's God. And when we understand the person of God, then... We start to infuse our prayers with power because we understand who it is we're praying to. Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 10 says this, verse 7 says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is good, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That's the God that we're praying to. We need to understand that. He's a faithful God. He keeps his covenant. He has steadfast love to a thousand generations. But we got to go on and we got to read the next verse. And he repays to their face those who hate him uh, by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. We have to understand, yes, he's a loving God. He's a gracious God, but he's also a righteous judge. And each and every one of us will stand in judgment for what we've done here on this earth with the reality that God so loved the world, he sent his only son. And all those who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Power-filled prayers are prayers in which we recognize the person of God. Secondly, power-filled prayers are prayers in which we rely upon the power of God. Now, that seems kind of redundant, but down in verse 19, we see after he lays out before God Almighty the recognition of who he is. He's creator. He's the one that made the heavens and the earth, and he asked him to incline his ear and, and to open his eyes. We see that. He says, so now, O Lord our God, save us, please. He understood something of inherent value that each and every one of us have to understand. That, that God's power is what we must rely upon. Not our own power, not our own strength, not our own wisdom. Hezekiah concedes in his prayer. He says that the Assyrians have defeated many enemies and, and all of their gods have been thrown into the fire because they weren't gods, because they were just wood and stone. We serve a living God. Hezekiah concedes the point that he cannot field an army to defeat the Assyrians, but what he refuses to do is to believe that God can't. He trusts in the fact that God, and in his power, can dispel the Assyrian army, can protect them through his power and through his power alone. Power-filled prayers are prayers in which we rely upon the power of God. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 4 says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Those strongholds that the enemy has in our lives, whether that's an, uh, an addiction, whether that's a root of bitterness, whether that's hatred in, in, in our heart, whether that's depression, whether that's whatever that is that the enemy has a foothold and a stronghold in our lives, we need to use our prayer to bombard that stronghold and with the divine power that God infuses those prayers with so that we can demolish those, those strongholds. 
Prayer is that powerful when we rely upon the power of God. Far too often, we want to treat God like a weapon. All right? We, we, want, we want to treat God. God is the lightsaber, right, that we just grab, and when we need it, you know what I'm saying? We just, we, we got, he's a weapon that we wield, and that, God, we want all your power. We don't really want you. We just want all of your power. We want you separated from the power. We just want to wield you like a weapon when we want it. No, 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 no. We're the weapon to be used in the hands of God. He's not a weapon we wield. We're a weapon he wields. We're to be his hands and feet. We're to be his ambassadors. We're to be the light in the darkness, to be used by him as he desires to be used. And the greatest way that we can do that is by falling on our knees and praying for those strongholds to be demolished in our lives and in the lives of those that are around us. Thirdly, power-filled prayers are prayers in which we resolve to proclaim God. That the resolve of our prayers or the desire that we have in our prayers isn't comfort for ourselves, it's glory for God. When you think about your prayers, when you pray and you desire your life to be more comfortable as a result of those prayers, you're missing out on what it is that God really wants to do, and that's to bring glory to his name. Now, maybe answering those prayers in that way does bring glory to, to his name, but ultimately the heart's desire and cry of our prayer ought to be that God gets more glory and God gets more recognition and God gets more fame. Look at King Hezekiah, power-filled prayer, verse 19. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that I'm a great king. So all the kingdoms of the earth may know that we're a great nation. No, 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 no. Look at verse 19. So that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. The reason why I want you to defeat this enemy is not just for comfort for, my, for our own lives. It's not just so that we would get glory or that we would be known. No, no, no. The reason why I'm praying this is because I want other nations to know that you are God and you are God alone. Because at the heart of Hezekiah's prayer is not comfort for God's people but conversion for the pagan world around him. It was not for glory for the people of God, but glory for the God of the people. First Chronicles 16, 8 says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. In other words, we want to live our lives, not so that we get recognition, not so that individuals know, know, know who we are, so that everybody knows who he is. You ever walked into a room or looked over at somebody and, and they were looking at something and you're trying to figure out what, they, what they're looking at? You, you ever done that? If you walked into this room and, and, and I, was, I was doing this, I know human nature. You know what you would do? You would look to see what am I looking at. As followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to be so enamored with God Almighty that our focus is solely on God so that the lost and dying world always look at us and say, what's he looking at? Let me show you. Let me point you to the one who has captured my heart and transformed my life. Far too often, though, 
we're fretting around, looking at this, looking at that, you know, along with the, with the, with the rest of the world. We're just, we're just looking around, just what's happening? This is the posture of every follower of Jesus Christ, focused in on God, so the lost and the dying world. What is it you're looking at? The one who changed my eternity, the one who changed my life through faith in Christ. He has the focus of my heart. Does he have the focus of yours? Remember, we talked about the fire from heaven falling with Elijah. I mean, I would have loved to, to have been there just to see that. What, what did that look like? God's word gives us a little bit of a description of what happened. In verse 36 of, of, of 1 Kings, it says, And at the time of the offering of the oblation or the sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, he, he understood the person of God. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. He understood the power of God and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that, the, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Now, verse 38, this is what happens. Then the fire of the Lord fell. He repaired the altar and he cried out. We first need to repair the altars of our hearts and then we need to cry out to God. If we want to be serious about revival, we better get serious about prayer. We cry out to God, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Look, revival doesn't just happen in a church. It, ha it happens in a community. It, it happens in multiple communities. It happens in a state. It happens in a nation. Everything is consumed when the fire of God falls. Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. When we pray for revival, our desire ought not be for just more people to come into this church. It ought to be that the lost and dying world falls on their face and says, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That's revival. 